Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for another Mo News Conversation. We try to bring on major newsmakers and experts about some of the biggest news questions you're asking about, breaking down the headlines. This, of course, is beyond the daily podcast that we do. And I'm really excited today to present part one of what is a three-part conversation with the former CIA acting director, Michael Morell. He had a very long decorated career in the CIA. I'll go into more of that in a moment. Uh, he also has his own podcast called Intelligence Matters. We'll talk about that as well. We sat down this week to talk about everything from the anniversary in Afghanistan. It's almost a year since Kabul fell. Talking about the global war on terrorism, especially after getting the number two in Al-Qaeda last week. We also went inside Putin's mind and strategy for what's next in the war in Ukraine and when that might end. We will have those conversations on the war on terrorism and Russia in the coming weeks. But today I'm going to start with our conversation around China. We've all been watching those headlines coming out of China and Taiwan in the past week. The military exercises continue and the entire region is on high alert as China lobs missiles near Japan, conducts war games mimicking an invasion of Taiwan. It all follows that visit by U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan last week. In this conversation, you'll get a sense of how close we are to potential war in the region, what we should be worried about, what the U.S. role would be in a potential military conflict, what he thinks of that Pelosi visit, was it a good move or not so much? And we'll talk a bit today about the larger challenges the CIA faces in the years ahead. And we'll have a bit of fun at the end. We'll be talking about movies and TV shows that depict the CIA, Homeland, etc. Which ones of them are accurate? He was in the belly of the beast. He'll tell us. Morell is very gracious to join me every few months to provide his perspective on these major challenges, how the CIA approaches things. To the extent he can, of course, he was obviously privy to lots of classified matters that he can't talk about, but he does provide, I think, a very interesting perspective. He offered analysis and advice to multiple U.S. presidents in his senior roles at the CIA. He's been in the Situation Room. He has some really incredible stories, and I think you'll really enjoy his perspective here in part one of our three-part convo. So I'm extremely pleased to have a, uh, another opportunity to speak with former CIA acting director, Michael Morell. We had the opportunity to work together during my time at CBS, where he was our go-to. He's the senior national security contributor at the network. He is also the host of Intelligence Matters, a podcast where he speaks with top leaders of the U.S. intel community as they reflect on their life, their career. I urge all of you to uh, be regular listeners to Intelligence Matters. Michael spent more than three decades at the CIA, where he was acting director at the agency twice in 2011 and then in 2012 to 2013. He was the deputy director for three years. He worked with multiple presidents, maintaining the CIA's relationships with foreign leaders, among many other duties. Notably, uh, Michael was the only person who was both with President Bush on 9-11 as his daily briefer and with President Obama in 2011 when bin Laden was brought to justice. Michael, I could go on the entire podcast about your uh, biography, but uh, I have a lot of questions for you. Sure. But I but I want to tell you one story just so your listeners know um, who they're talking to here. So you you mentioned, most that I was acting director twice. Yeah. Um, once when I was acting director the second time, my wife and I went out for dinner in Arlington, Virginia, and we were in these big armored SUVs, right? And we pulled into the parking lot um, and there was a guy standing against the wall and he was looking at these big, big SUVs. And you could tell by the look on his face that he was trying to figure out who this was, right? Was this Michelle Obama? Was this Secretary Kerry, right? Who was this? And he was on my wife's side of the car. So when she got out, he said to her, is that somebody important? And without missing a beat, my wife said, no, he's just acting important. <laughs> 
just tells you a little something about, you know, who's in charge in my house. Listen, I think uh, one of the important roles all of our uh, spouses and partners play is to uh, keep us humble. That was a that was a humbling moment. I want to talk about China and what we saw in the lead up to Nancy Pelosi's visit, what we've seen since the concern the Taiwanese have as to the lessons the Chinese are learning from what's happening in Ukraine and in the the continuing increase in show of force that the Chinese military uh, is uh, is doing with the, the various exercises, etc., in preparing for an eventual invasion of the island. Lay out from your perspective, Michael, what you see playing out right now in regards to China, um, especially in the, the fallout of the Pelosi visit. Yeah. So the Chinese, um, the Chinese had to respond. Um, so Taiwan is, is a significant issue um, in China. Um, the Chinese public believes, the Chinese leadership believes, the Chinese elite believes, the Chinese public believes, they all believe that Taiwan is part of China. Um, and there would be extraordinarily strong support um, for going to war if Taiwan declared independence. Um, so this is a this is a this is this is a fundamental issue inside China. Um, it's a legitimacy issue for the Chinese Communist Party if they failed to respond um, in a way that met the demands of the Chinese public. Um, it would be it would be deeply concerning to them, um, and rightfully so. So this is a, this is a, they they had to respond to the Pelosi visit. Um, you know, a very very senior American official, certainly you know, um, speaker had gone before, but that was a long time ago. Different right? That was Gingrich in the in the nineties. That was a long time ago. Um, so the Chinese had to respond, and they responded in a in a fairly significant way. Um, you know, they they overflew. There were some unprecedented things that they did. They um, overflew Taiwan with ballistic missiles. First time that's ever been done. They fired um, live missiles into uh, Japanese waters. First time that was ever done. And by the way, the Japanese quickly came out and said um, uh, they must have fired them, you know, at other targets and they missed their target. And the Chinese quickly corrected them. And said, "No, we intended." <laughs> no, we no, intended Japan. That was our plan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, they did some things that they started to do um, that are very important. So, they actually did live exercises on the eastern side of Taiwan. Obviously, um, you know, China faces the western, um, the western coast of Taiwan, but um, in a in a military situation, in a in a invasion scenario, um, China would be coming at them from every direction. And they did some exercises on the eastern side of Taiwan. So that was important. Um, so they had to do this politically. Um, it, it, it had two benefits to them, right? One is it, it helps Xi Jinping look strong as he goes into his party Congress this fall, where he's trying to get an unprecedented third term. So, you know, helpful to him politically. And then two, um, two is that it allows them to practice. It allows them to practice an invasion. So we just handed them a card, right, where they, they were able to blame us 
for conducting military exercises that will sharpen their ability to take Taiwan. Um, and then third, and perhaps most importantly, is um, our allies did not react as positively as we would hope. So South Korea being the most significant example, the South Korean president would not meet with Nancy Pelosi um, in the aftermath of her visit to Taiwan. Uh, he, was, he was scheduled to, um, and he said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to be on vacation. I'm not going to be able to meet with you. Um, he was sending a message to the United States. So um, our allies in Asia do not want to be put in a situation where they are caught between China and the United States. And that's the yeah. message that South Korea was sending. So it sounds like you're saying the Pelosi visit was a mistake there, Michael. Absolutely, it was a mistake. You know, and not because there weren't upsides, not because there weren't upsides, right? There was, there's an upside to sending a message to Taiwan that we support you and we support your democracy. And that, that visit gave it that, right? But there were also significant downsides. And I would argue as... You know, the media tells us the Pentagon argued that the downsides were much greater than the upsides. One thing that struck me, too, is that uh, among other things, in, uh, in addition to those exercises, the Chinese also dropped a military cooperation we have with them. Um, explain what that is and how important that is, uh, the, the line that uh, folks at the Pentagon have into Beijing. So it's very important for the two sides in, 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 in all but a war scenario, right, to, to be talking, um, to be able to pick up the phone and say, hey, we're going to, you know, we're doing this exercise next week. It's not aimed at you. Um, or, you know, it is, it is dialogue is extraordinarily important to managing tensions. Um, and anytime you lose dialogue, and we've lost a lot of dialogue with China over the past 10 years, um, it, 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 it has a tendency to, um, to make tensions worse, to make it more difficult to manage tensions. So it, it, it's worrisome from that perspective. Is it only a matter of time? I mean, it's been 70 ish years since China had territorial control of Taiwan coming out of the civil war there. I mean, are we, just kind of living in a world where we're postponing the inevitable? Or is there actually a scenario where the West and the U.S. could successfully hold off an eventual or prevent an eventual Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Yeah, so this is a, this is a great question. So, you know, there's two things that the Chinese have to look at when they think about um, invading Taiwan. Um by the way, this is an extraordinarily risky proposition for them. You know, if they attempt an invasion and they are defeated, that may be the end of the Communist Party. But is there that scenario? I mean, we're talking about Taiwan's the size of Vermont. It's an island. It has 20 million people. Okay. So invading Taiwan is a lot more difficult than invading Ukraine. Hmm. I mean, there's 100 miles of, of very rough water. Um, there are very few beaches that you can land on is very rocky. Um, Taiwan is very mountainous. It is the perfect place to conduct um, insurgent operations. Um, it's not the place for tanks to move around, right? This is, this is a big challenge. And the Chinese military would tell you today that they're not ready yet. 
they are not fully ready yet to even just take on Taiwan. Even though the Chinese have a conventional military advantage today over Taiwan, the Chinese military will tell you we're not ready. We're probably not going to be ready for a few more years. The other thing that matters is the military balance between China and the United States in case the United States decides to join this, this war you know, that China starts when it, when, when it tries to invade Taiwan. And there, the Chinese have a huge advantage today because they spent the last 20 years, the last 20 years when we've been fighting a counterinsurgency and a counterterrorism war, the Chinese have been figuring out how do we keep the United States away from Taiwan in a war scenario, right? So that's why they've developed these, um, these missiles capable of taking out ships in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They've worked very hard to develop what are called um, um, area denial anti-access weapons. So these are weapons to keep the United States away. So today they've got the advantage in that, but we're working very hard to develop the capabilities that would counter their capabilities. And those could well be in place by the early 2030s. So they've got a window here, say between 2025 and 2030, you know, 2025, they, they, they're, they're, they, they feel confident enough that they can take Taiwan and keep us away. But by 2030, right, we're going to have caught up and they won't be able to keep us away. So they've got like a five-year window from 2025 to 2030 and that's the time period that I really worry about. And, and, and a decision to invade really comes down to a decision on the leadership of China that there's no other way to bring Taiwan back into the fold, right? This, this coercion that we've talked about, you know, tying the two countries together economically, coercing them back into the fold, incentivizing them back into the fold, coming to the conclusion that that simply will not work. And the only option we do have is a military option. And I don't know if they've made that decision yet, but um, all three countries are heading in the direction of this whole idea of one China, two systems, um, Taiwan possibly negotiating its way back into the fold somehow. Everybody's kind of coming to the conclusion that that's a charade and it's never going to happen. And if China comes to that conclusion and develops the right military capabilities, then I think we're in a very dangerous situation. The, the assumption a lot of us have always had is that as the US and China develop more ties, the two world's largest economies, um, that those types of things and that growth and that relationship dissuades, prevents military conflict mm -hmm. and dissuades the Chinese yep. from uh, doing this sort of thing. Yep. Um, so I'd say two things. One is um, that's what everybody thought prior to World War One. I. I mean, people wrote about this prior to World War One. War is never going to happen anymore because of so much trade and so much interdependence. Yeah. Um, and then number two, both the United States and China are, are undertaking what people call decoupling. So they're reducing, they're working to reduce their dependence on each other just because um, of the potential for war between the two countries. So um, that's something that will increasingly happen and probably will get, get reinforced by the war in Ukraine, right? This need, this need to decouple and this need not to be so dependent on the other side that you're not able to do what you want to do. 
And you you mentioned it earlier, and a lot of it is uh, you know a Chinese assessment of what the Americans might do. Uh, to what extent would we come into the defense of Taiwan? Would it be similar to Ukraine? Would we go more? We've had this policy. I think it's called strategic ambiguity when it comes to Taiwan for years. Ex- explain what that is, and yeah. like, is it really in the eye of each administration? Frankly, in in each president, each American president, as to what we might do and what we're willing to risk for the so for the sake of the Taiwanese democracy. Yeah, strategic ambiguity has been the policy of every U.S. administration um, since we um, normalized relations with uh, China in uh, 1979, right? Um, And strategic ambiguity says we're not going to say with certainty whether we're going to come to the defense of Taiwan or not. It's going to depend on the circumstances. And that, that was the policy because, number one, if we said we wouldn't come to Taiwan's aid, then that could incentivize China to invade. But if we said we will absolutely come to China, to Taiwan's aid, then that could incentivize Taiwan to declare independence, which we don't want them to do. Um, so that's why it's been the policy. There are, there are people arguing today that we should have strategic clarity, that we should say we will come to the defense of Taiwan um, under any circumstance. Um, my concern is that if we were to change that policy from strategic ambiguity to strategic clarity, or if we were to change our one China policy and again, recognize Taiwan, that the Chinese would probably need to act militarily um, and, and changing one of those two policies could well result in the invasion of Taiwan. You've mentioned this, the meeting with former Chinese officials to talk about good millennia and bad millennia. Explain, you know, you, know, you talked about how the Chinese are looking into the next decade. In the 2030s, it might be difficult for us to do this. So we got to look in the next five years. Explain to us this long range of history the Chinese have um, when now, it comes to their foreign policy. One of the main drivers of Chinese foreign policy is to overcome what they saw as the century of humiliation, right? They, they used to be the largest economy in the world. They used to dominate East Asia. The countries of East Asia were essentially Chinese vassal states. And over a period of time, they lost all of that. They, they lost territory. They were, they were parts of China were, Chinese, were, were, were Japanese colonies. Um, Taiwan was, a, was a, a, a Japanese colony from the late 1800s to 1945. Um, and so um, getting back what you lost in this century of humiliation um, is a big part of Chinese foreign policy. And it's actually Xi's intention for China to regain everything it lost by, by um, 2050, 2049, I think. Actually. What does that include besides Taiwan, just for the sake of- so Taiwan is uh, really the only thing left. Got it. And there's some border disputes with Vietnam and some border disputes with India, um, but it essentially means- it essentially means Taiwan. Taiwan is the only thing is is really the only thing left on that list. And that's hence why it's so important. Final question on China: um, How difficult is it to discern what happens in Beijing within the uh, the leadership there? Um, how what are the challenges, or what are the unique challenges to uh, getting a sense of what is happening uh, and and what will happen next in China? I think the unique challenge is that she has a very small um, group of advisors. It's a very small inner circle. 
not that different than Putin. So to really understand what she is thinking um, and really understand decision making and really understand decisions that have been made or haven't been made yet, um, you really need to get inside that inner circle. And that's really hard. As opposed to, you know, a consensus oriented system that China used to have where decision making was much broader and therefore much easier to see into. And and now that we're out of, uh, to a certain extent, Afghanistan, et cetera, do you see from your vantage point the U.S. Uh, recalibrating and taking the issues in East Asia and, and China more seriously because we, we have more bandwidth these days? So there's not there's not new resources, right, to focus on China. So you have to take resources from somewhere else and focus them on China. Um, you know, they're being taken from counterterrorism um, and there's room to take there. Um, you can't take too much mm-hmm. because terrorist groups have this habit of bouncing back. Um, you know, they, they're, they're easy to defeat, but they're also easy to rebuild if you take your focus off of them. So we can't take, you know, we can't take everything. But there are resources being taken away from counterterrorism and put on China. Um, but these are, you know, um, collecting intelligence is not an easy thing. Uh, it's hard. Um, it takes time. You can't can't say, okay, I want to start an intelligence collection tomorrow on X, Y, or Z, right? It's a years-long process. Mm-hmm. Um, and um uh, we're probably not where we need to be. I don't know where we are, but we're probably not where we need to be with regard to intelligence collection on China, I would bet. You, you bring me to my final question, which is what is the biggest challenge for the agency in the years ahead? What is the biggest threat they should be focused on? Uh, but, but generally speaking, some of the things you were working on uh, before you left the agency um, when it co- comes to dealing with this modern world, dealing with technology, uh, et cetera, what, what is uh, challenge number one at Langley? Yeah, I think challenge number one, um, you know, CIA is a very insular place. Um, and there's a, there, there tends to be a view outside of CIA and the U.S. government that CIA wants to control everything. And this is not true. CIA just wants to be left alone to do its thing. Um, and, and, and it's a very insular place, right? Whether you're an operations officer or whether you're an analyst. Um, and I think the big challenge for CIA going forward is to be much less insular and much more open to the world outside of it, whether that is bringing in um, analytic ideas from other places, whether they're other places in the government or outside the government and business and think tanks, um, or whether it's being open to new technology coming into the agency with, that the agency really needs to take advantage of if it's going to be um, a successful in conducting its own operations and B um, make it more difficult for other guys to, to, to uh, conduct operations against the United States. Um, so I'd say we got to get over our, uh, got to get over our, um, our desire for insularity and, uh, and open up. For those who want to know more about the CIA, both in terms of nonfiction books and movies and Hollywood, what would you say are the most accurate? No, I wonder with Hollywood, TV shows or movies that you think got the agency right, and then any any books that people should be reading beyond beyond your book, Michael, um, about the agency. Yeah, I mean there are there's textbooks out there, right? But no, yeah. but they're not readable, um, right? Um, movies, you know, movies tend to fall into. Um, 
you know, overstating the agency's capabilities or understating them or painting the, the agency as a rogue organization, right? Totally out of control. So there's not, there's not a lot of great movies out there. You, You know, one of the best books ever written was Agents of Influence. It really portrays what the operational world looks like. Um, the Billion Dollar Spy um, is a terrific book, you know, true story of one of CIA's um, most successful um, penetrations of the Soviet Union um, ever. Um, so there's some there's some good books out there, but you really have to you really have to hunt for them. Got it. So you're not recommending well, Homeland to You just gave me an idea. You just gave okay. me an idea to do a podcast on what are the best books and the best movies about CIA. Oh, yes. A yeah. thousand percent. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, in, in fact, I think I'm, I'm because we discussed it here, Michael, I'd like to be executive producer of that podcast. <laughs> I will absolutely <laughs> give you credit for the idea. <laughs> Um, I, I, so, yeah, you know, because uh, most recently it's been a lot of uh, questions about. I think Homeland was probably the most prominent show on television. Yeah, the only Trying thing to- accurate about Homeland was Carrie's passion for the job. Mm. Right, that kind of passion is what you see in CIA officers, particularly those who are dealing with life and death situations. Um, but everything else is pretty much not. Got it. Well, it was still was entertaining to watch. Um, Michael Morell, thank you for all of your time. You're welcome. Uh, your, your insight uh, into all of the uh, of the big challenges. I, I appreciate your wisdom as always and uh, want to remind folks to subscribe to Intelligence Matters, uh, Michael's podcast, where he breaks down all these issues with some of the other folks who were at the senior levels of uh, intelligence gathering and operations, etc. Michael, thank you. You're welcome. Great to be with you, Moshe. I want to thank Michael Morell again for his time and perspective. A reminder that we have much more to come from this conversation next week on the one year anniversary of the fall of Kabul. We'll bring you our deep dive into Afghanistan, Al Qaeda. What happens in the Situation Room when a call is made to assassinate a terrorist? Morell will break that down for us. And finally, we'll have a third part for you the following week, all about Putin, Ukraine, Russia. Putin's a former KGB guy, also an intelligence guy. We'll get into how Morell thinks that he thinks or knows that he thinks and when we might see an end to that conflict, which hits the six month point later this month. Don't forget to follow us and review us in the App Store. Every review makes a difference. Every subscription and follow of the show makes a difference. I appreciate everyone's support. Don't forget beyond the podcast to subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and follow us on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone back here soon.